All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I have a special guest on today. We have Ed Cressy. Ed is a really interesting guy. He's, uh, he's had a lot of opportunities in life, college education, career with Genetech, uh, home ownership in San Francisco, yet he threw it all away, um, to two decades of drug addiction. He spent months in jail and years in destitution. His final 11 years of addiction to methamphetamine resulted in uh, harrowing psychosis, including extreme paranoia around the FBI. After getting in clean in 2008, he discovered just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. He continued to battle severe mental health challenges. Fortunately, amazing individuals inspired him to pursue a path of self-improvement, spirituality, and service to others. In 2019, FBI Director Christopher Wray recognized him with his Director's Community Leadership Award. His inspiring transformation is the subject of his upcoming book, My Addiction and Recovery, Just Because You're Done with Drugs Doesn't Mean Drugs Are Done with You. His articles appear in the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Vox. He's appeared on stage for The Moth. He volunteers for the FBI and police department in his hometown of San Francisco, helping their outreach to communities affected by incarceration and addiction. Ed, I could keep going, but I think that was a that was a little bit to start us off. Welcome to the cute. show. <laughs> Thank you, Toby. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, from what I've I've read about your story, I mean, it's it's quite fascinating. It would you be able to kind of give our listeners just a little idea of kind of you know what sort of transpired um, in your life that kind of uh, you know led to you getting to that very low point. Sure. Well, a lot of things happened. It goes back to, for, for a lot of us who struggle with addiction, the way I struggled for two decades, it often goes back to childhood. I was, I had a lot of opportunities in life, as you so kindly mentioned. I was always a bullied kid. I was ostracized. I felt ostracized. I was picked on. I couldn't fit in with the cliques of popular kids. Um, I was afraid to stand up for myself on, on the playground. One of the first ways I felt like I could connect with people my own age was through writing. Because I, I learned to read. My house was full of books when I was a kid. So I learned how words should look on the page. I developed a love of reading. Part of it was I loved to escape into fantasy worlds. The world of fantasy to me was always much more attractive than reality. When I was a, a kid, some of the first times I felt really empowered were, were when the English teacher would call me to the front of the room to read aloud a story I had written. And these were the times I felt like I, I was bringing something to the world around me. These were some of the first times as a young adult. One, what happened, unfortunately, was I found a faster way and a seemingly easier way to get those same feelings of confidence through drinking. I got drunk for the first time when I was 14, really drunk for the first time when I was 14. I became a heavy drinker at age 16. I went to college early at age 17, started getting into drugs, cocaine, marijuana. I would dabble in psychedelics. I did a lot of ecstasy. All of it to tamp down the negativity I felt towards myself because I never pursued my dream of being a writer. There were other reasons too, but a main reason is I had this dream since I was a kid. Instead of pursuing the dream, which was being a writer, I pursued things like uh, a career, a home, a motorcycle, relationships, None of, nothing wrong with any of it, nothing wrong at all. But when I use those things as substitutes for my dream, that's when I developed the negativity or that's maybe a reason I failed to address the negativity I felt towards myself from being that bullied, ostracized kid. I projected negativity to the world around me. I buried it all under an avalanche of drugs. Eventually, all the things I mentioned, the home, the career with Genentech, the life savings, my beloved dog, all my relationships, I threw it all away and much more. I was in a point of methamphetamine psychosis. I, I spent a total of 11 years addicted to meth. I was smoking it every day. I believed in these vast FBI conspiracies that were targeting me. 
because I had inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker. This was my life. I, that world of fantasy I got from books, I made terrifyingly real as a result of my methamphetamine psychosis. I heard disembodied voices threatening to come and kidnap me and torture me to death. I believe the FBI architected a conspiracy to pin 9-11 on me and put me in prison for the rest of my life. My family and friends were all in on it. There were pictures of me in Sports Illustrated swimsuit magazine, doctor pictures to send me a, a message of fear. I spent, I would go months without showering or brushing my teeth. I toted a loaded 357 pistol as protection against people I thought were after me. Toby, I could go on and on. This basically from the point of a privileged Caucasian male in America, given almost every opportunity, poor decisions related to my failure to develop the confidence in pursuing my dream. And I became in 2007 at the point where for years I had been little other than a drain on society. I was draining the resources of law enforcement. I drained the resources of the court system. I drained community resources. I frightened the citizens because I was shambling the sidewalks and lurking in doorways, having screaming matches with people who weren't even there. You know, I, I basically took a lot of opportunities and transformed them to a, part, to a point where I was just taking and taking and taking, and I was a very negative influence on society. And what was the point of bottoming out? Yeah, that was like a that was like a three year point. Okay. <laughs> a lot of point. You know, I remember once I was uh, I was I spent a couple of nights in a homeless shelter. I was never homeless for long term, but I remember one night everybody was in the homeless shelter smoking cigarettes. Some enterprising man was selling cigarettes for twenty five cents. I had three quarters in my pocket. I pulled out a quarter, and as I was smoking my cigarette, I realized I had just spent one third of my entire net worth on a single cigarette. You know, cause that three quarters, that was all I had to my name. And I just spent a third of that on a single, single smoke. I, I, the real bottom came in October of 2007 when I was living in a flop house hotel. There was a little sink in the corner where I would ash my cigarettes, wash my clothes and urinate. This was at the point where I hadn't showered or brushed my teeth in months. The only clothes I owned just about was this filthy tuxedo because I'd worked in the strip clubs in the North Beach area of San Francisco. They, the, the strip clubs even treated me well. You know, they, they gave me a chance and I made them pay for it. You know, I was a terrible employee. I stole from them. I showed up high to work. So all I really had left in, in life was this filthy tuxedo. I was being evicted from my hotel room. I was going into long-term homelessness or incarceration, or if I was lucky, those things, or the grave. You know, my choices were really down to three. I could get locked up, I could get covered up, like six feet of earth covered up, or I could get sobered up. Those were really my only options. I, I wore this filthy tuxedo to a fancy hotel in downtown San Francisco. I went to the bar and somebody set down a drink and walked away. I picked up the drink and, and knocked it back. I found myself at the threshold of a hotel ballroom. Inside the ballroom, a wedding reception was taking place. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm standing there in my filthy tuxedo thinking I'm gonna crash this wedding reception, you know, blend in, <laughs> eat at the buffet, get a drink and, you know, make up some story. As I'm standing there, something in my mind clicks. I realize that in the few years previous to my being in that hotel ballroom, five weddings had taken place. These were 10 of my closest friends. One couple had asked me to be the best man. And Toby, do you know how many of those weddings I showed up to out of the five? None. Zero, exactly. 10 of my closest friends had gotten married. I didn't show up to a single wedding, not even to be the best man after I was asked. In addition to that, I'd been hearing these disembodied voices for years. I consider the voices my spouse. I, I always consider myself married to these disembodied voices. Something inside me clicked that when I went home that night, I smoked the last of my meth. I smoked the last of my marijuana. The very next day I got up, I started working incredibly hard. I began going to 12-step meetings. 
two, three, four, sometimes five a day. I began pursuing a path of spirituality. I was never a spiritual person, but I began considering that there might be something called a, a God or a higher power or a universe or a great spirit, whatever label we choose to put on that force, should we choose it exists, I began to consider that force might be out there for me. And I began to put my faith and my trust in a pursuit of that force, which I've still 12 years later, I probably understand that force less today than I did back then. But that belief, uh, that faith in a higher power got me out of some very dark circumstances. I worked incredibly hard at improving myself. I became a volunteer. I volunteered for soup kitchens, for the Red Cross, for the SPCA, wherever I could apply myself to bettering the people around me, meaning uh, feed a homeless person a meal or help someone who had experienced a, a loss due to a disaster, you know, via the Red Cross, anywhere I could be of service of some use, that's what I would do. I, uh, I got mentors. I got AA sponsors. I, uh, I, I connected with spiritual advisors, rabbis, Zen practitioners, meditators. Toby, I just worked incredibly hard for years and years. What I discovered, among other things, is that just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. So I continued to experience a form of psychosis. And even to this day, I hear disembodied voices. I was going to actually, that was, that was going to be the next thing I, I was going to ask as far as being able to, to sort of shift into all of this kind of self-improvement while you were still battling this kind of severe mental illness. And as you're saying, you, you know, still, still hearing those voices. How, how are you able to do that? I was able to do that because people, amazing people and amazing organizations gave me a second chance. People believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. People believed that I could bring value to the world around me, that my path of spirituality, self-improvement, and service to others actually was lending something to the world. And when, I be, when people began to see and trust that there was value in me, then I began to see that there was value in myself amazing individuals or amazing organizations like the FBI. I'm so grateful to the FBI. They gave me a second chance. I began to work with uh, organizations that allow me to volunteer inside maximum security prisons, helping persons develop skills for entrepreneurism and employment. I was able to start volunteering in a women's unit of county jail and doing that every week for three years. The point is I learned that just because I experience what most people or what many people would label a form of schizophrenia, even to this day, I hear the disembodied voices and I entertain ideas about government interest in my life. That doesn't prevent me from doing something good for the world around me. I might not always be able to control the, the thoughts of depression or anxiety, but I can certainly control my actions. I can say a kind word. I can send a, an encouraging text message. I can show up at a place volunteering, helping people. I can do all these things. And what I put out there into the world, and I believe what we put out there into the world, that comes back to us. Society Absolutely. gave me a second chance, and I benefit, yes, but society benefits as well. Right. So this is really interesting. As far as tell me about your, like, getting to, to volunteer for the FBI from, from a point where it sounds like you were going through all these paranoid delusions that the FBI was after you. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Going, no, going no, to actually. Global, yeah. No, global conspiracy. F and not just the FBI, the Mossad, Interpol, the CIA, the NSA, the Department of Defense, they were all involved. Okay. And this is, you know, this is in my mind, right? Just, these are the delusions that I created, but Toby, this life was as real to me as the conversation you and I are having now. I mean, this is not something like I'm, I'm reading a book and I put the mm -hmm. book down. This was my life and this was my reality. I believed in these FBI conspiracies. So, you know, basically, after I quit meth for years, I was very frightened of the FBI. I was sunk into paranoia. I believed they were targeting me. I believe they were following me, listening to me, that they were going to pin 9-11 uh, on me, various things. Eventually, I decided, you know, if I'm ever going to live the, my best life, I'm going to have to face my fears. 
at the time I had been volunteering for the fire department in San Francisco as a first responder. I got an EMT certification. The fire department allowed me to take certain trainings to, uh, to, to help them in case the city services were overwhelmed with the disaster. So I was able to take trainings and do scenarios. Uh, from there, at the same time, I had become a Krav Maga instructor. And if you're not familiar, Krav Maga is, it's like martial arts. It's, it's an Israeli form of self-defense. So Krav Maga is a way I'm improving myself. The fire department is a way I'm serving others. What happens was these two things kind of combined and one of my Krav Maga students happened to be an FBI SWAT team agent. I made it known to him, I wanted to volunteer, to face my fears, I made it known I wanted to volunteer for the FBI like I'd been volunteering for the fire department. He generously uh, arranged for me to lead an unarmed self-defense for the FBI SWAT team. So the very people that I was so afraid were gonna come in the middle of the night and kick down my door and drag me away, now all of a sudden I'm their instructor. And this just goes to show the value of facing your fears. You know, it's like Joseph Campbell wrote, the cave we fear to enter holds the treasure we seek, right? When I faced my fears of the FBI, all the, and it was a long process. I had to keep working very hard. It's not like one day, boom, the SWAT team shows up at my self-defense Krav Maga studio and then everything's fine. It took years and years, but basically I kept putting myself out there. I reached out to the FBI SWAT team guys. I uh, volunteered to train them. They appreciated my efforts. They nominated me to the Selective FBI Citizens Academy, which is a six-week program, one night a week, where they take civilians, mostly civilians who are involved with public safety or security in the tech realm. You know, in San Francisco, we got a lot of tech. They, uh, they nominated me. I got turned down for the Citizens Academy. I reapplied. I got turned down again. Three times I got turned down even though my, my sponsor was a senior guy in the FBI SWAT team. And now I'm getting really paranoid. Now I'm like, oh, they're, they're truly messing with me now, the FBI. But I kept persevering, Toby. It just goes to show you the value of perseverance. It turned out the reason I got rejected from the Citizens Academy was mostly administrative matters. Uh, it had nothing to do with my criminal history or, or anything like that. On my fourth application, my fourth time persevering for the FBI Citizens Academy, I got accepted. I was able to assist the FBI, conduct outreach to communities affected by incarceration and addiction. The FBI, and by no means do I intend a blanket endorsement of all things law enforcement. No, I, I, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, what I have learned is that there are incredible individuals in the FBI, and the FBI as an organization does many things to support communities that are affected by incarceration and addiction. And the FBI is, uh, is in San Francisco is truly making positive outreach to these communities. I'm able to assist and uh, to, to kind of wind down the story in May of last year, in May of 2019, I found myself at FBI headquarters receiving a community service award from the director of the FBI. It's one of the highest civilians. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I, I Ed Cressy, received one of the highest civilian honors the FBI gives for community service from a guy who 12 years ago was, was uh, lurking the streets high on meth, believing the FBI followed me in invisible stealth bombers. It just goes to show you the value of perseverance, of spirituality, of self-improvement, of being ser of service to others. They got me from the, the lowest point of, of, of physical surroundings and even, if you can imagine, a lower point in my head. My, my head was, it was such a dark, terrible place in my mind. Got me to a point where I'm truly able to bring something of value to society. Perseverance, spirituality, service to others, self-improvement, man. These things, when put together and a solid effort behind it, can really make a huge difference in your life. That's incredible. I mean, that... You, you walk the walk, you don't just, you know, talk the talk that, that really speaks bounds, you know, to, to all the things that you're saying. I'm, I got to ask you, you know, now that you've kind of seen both sides of things, I guess, coming from both, uh, you know, being involved in, in drugs and sounds like, you know, interactions with, you know, the law enforcement to now um, sort of working with them. 
what what's your perspective as far as you know uh you know drug addiction and you know crime along with you know it, do we need to make how, what do you feel about the system where it's at as far as are people who are addicted to drugs do they need more rehabilitation are they treated too much like criminals what's your what's your perspective on that yeah it's such a complex issue each individual is different i think for for me the most powerful message is that second chances benefit the receivers someone like me yet second chances benefit society just as much if not more so and i've seen so many cases i volunteer inside maximum security prisons in california i work closely with men who society labels as the very worst of the very worst you know these are so I'd love yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. So what what is your uh what uh what is your job or what are you assisting these these men with? I help coach them. I, I go in uh, along with a number of business executives and entrepreneurs and uh very successful human beings. Uh I go in there. I'm not a very successful human being, but some of the people I work with really are. We go in and we coach them. We're part of an organization that delivers training in entrepreneurism and employment and personal development. So we go in and we work with, the, these are men who have been convicted of murder in many cases, who have been affiliated with the Crips, the Bloods, the Nortenos, the Aryan Brotherhood. These are guys whom by their own admission have made mistakes, but you know, society uh, didn't give a lot of these guys a chance. And just to be clear, in the same way, I don't intend a blanket endorsement of all things law enforcement because I volunteer with the FBI and the police department. I'm not saying that every person who's incarcerated fits into the category I'm describing, but the men and the women uh, in jail who I work with, who apply themselves, who are working hard to turn their lives around, you know, when, when we in, as society give individuals like this second chances, we help them, but we help ourselves as, as a society even more. You know, these turnaround stories, we all face obstacles. We've all made mistakes. We all, uh, you know, we, we have all put setbacks upon ourselves and upon others. Um, it's not to excuse our past actions. Well, I don't mean to excuse the crimes that people have committed or that I've committed. Uh, but when we apply ourselves to turning our lives around, we have a lot to offer society. And once we've paid our dues, then America as the land of second chances really benefits when she, meaning America, provides those second chances. I've seen it time and time and time again. We, as a, to, to get back to your question, should we put efforts into rehabilitating persons who struggle with addiction? Should we put efforts into transforming the lives of people who want to apply themselves once they've served their time and once they've paid their, uh, paid their dues to society? I'll, what I can say is from, with my own eyes, I've seen time and time and time again how society benefits when we do these things. That's incredible. So I got to ask, what are, what are the biggest things that you've learned, uh, you know, as far as interacting with these, you know, these incarcerated uh, people who, you know, I assume from all different types of backgrounds, what what sort of lessons or how did you figure out how to how to communicate and and get your message across to these people yeah well, well first of all i love that you're using the term incarcerated persons these are terms these are humanizing terms we try to use instead of prisoners or inmates or felons so it's great to hear you using the term uh, incarcerated persons the biggest thing i've learned i'll tell you if uh of all them and i work very closely with these men um if they had been given the same opportunities in life that I was, they would have turned out fine. You know, I, I feel these are guys who, when they were eight years old, opened the front door of their home to see somebody bleeding to death from a stab wound right there on their porch. These are guys who, when they were six years old, their dad brought them uh, and shot to death a man right in front of them so their father could show them, the six-year-old, how it was done. You know, these are kids who, when they were, 10 years old, they left their house and then they were surrounded by the street gang and your choice was, was either to get stomped or to join the gang. I don't know about you, uh, you know, you, you might have more strength and fortitude than I did when you were a youth. I would have joined the gang. 
I, I'm, you know, I live in beautiful, I grew up in beautiful rural Massachusetts. There was a gang of wild turkeys, you know, outside in the field. Uh, but there were no, if there had been a street gang, I would join the gang. The, the point is, the men I work with, if they'd been given the same socioeconomic uh, opportunities, the same edu educational opportunities I was, they would have been fine. They would have done better than me. Look how I turned out. I turned out, uh, you know, addicted to drugs. Um, I think the other, to get back to your question, uh, I heard a beautiful story from a man who was serving a long sentence. He was telling me how he chose to view his sentence as a learning opportunity. He chose to become uh, part of a faith-based organization and minister to other men to prevent them from making the same mistakes he did. If a guy can serve a long prison sentence and choose to see his circumstances as an opportunity to learn and grow, then man, I can certainly see my circumstances the same way. There's uh, you know, a guy who, uh, who served a long stretch in prison, uh, his name is James Stockdale. He, he, was a, he was an admiral in the Navy. And he, uh, he served like eight years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And he cites uh, the work of one of the Stoics. Who's, and what he says is that, you know, we're not troubled by what happens to us. We're troubled by the views we take on it. Right? Or to put it another way, you know, we don't suffer from our, we, we suffer from our grief and anger. We don't nearly as much suffer from the things that caused our grief and anger. Right. Right. The point being that, you know, we choose, we can, our circumstances, they happen to us. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic right now on May 29th, uh, 2020. We, we can't do anything about the fact there's a pandemic out there. We can do very little about the fact we're being asked to shelter in place. We're be, we can do a little about the fact we got to wear masks and, and maintain social distancing. These things are beyond our control for the most part. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of control over how we choose to view our circumstances. I we love that. Yep. Yeah, we choose to and, view at first. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just wanted to go back to some, you know, I, I want to continue on along this tangent as well. But going back to something you said, you know, as far as these, you know, the, uh, you know, these incarcerated people who've, you know, had very incredibly tough life circumstances, you know, as probably especially as kids, it seems like it's a lot easier for, for kind of everyone in society who who didn't face those sort of hardships to just write them off as bad people because that's that's easy then you don't have to take into account all of the different factors that cause these people to do you know make the sort of life choices that they did but i think what's so powerful about what you're saying and, and helping you know share your own story is there's always there's always reasons right that that you know you do things that you're not you know that that have gotten you to to pretty bad places and uh, people don't necessarily choose or they're not necessarily bad people you know right from the from the get-go exactly yeah they've made and, and this is and by no means does it excuse the crimes no that, the, yeah. that these men and, and the women i work with are, were convicted of it doesn't excuse their crimes uh it doesn't excuse the fact that they victimize people but what it does mean is, is just like you say, there are mitigating factors that when we use their experiences or when we help them use their experiences to transform their lives, they have a lot to, to teach us. They being people who've served time, who have been incarcerated, who've made mistakes and are turning their lives around. We've all made mistakes. We, we haven't all necessarily committed crimes. We've all made mistakes and when we take uh, when, when we look at people who've made what we consider some of the worst mistakes and what they, by their own admission, consider terrible mistakes, yet they're able to transform their lives into bringing benefit and good and, and even uh, beauty into the world, that gives us incredible inspiration to transform our own past mistakes, too. Absolutely. Well said. So I'm curious as far as, you know, what, what are your thoughts as far as what we can do you know, as a society, you know, to, I guess, mitigate, you know, some of these issues as far as, you know, do you see it? Do you see the drugs being the problem? Do you see the poverty being the problem, the, the family situations, or is it kind of a culmination of all these things? From my own perspective, I was never a violent criminal. 
as I never was. And I always thought that the reason I was, I was never a violent criminal was I made better decisions. You know, hey, I make better decisions. That's what, I really, I really believe that. When I started working with, when I served a little time in jail and when I started working with incarcerated persons, I realized that the reason I never committed violent crimes was because I never quote unquote had to. Okay, meaning when I was dealing cocaine, for example, I was dealing cocaine out of an apartment that my parents were paying for while they were also paying for my college education, right? Had that not been the case, I would have been dealing crack cocaine on the street corner and, and I would have probably almost certainly committed violent crimes. The point is society gave me unfair advantages because of, let's face it, the color of my skin, which is white, and because of my socioeconomic background. I got these unfair advantages. That's the reason I didn't commit violent crimes. Now, Toby, these things sound obvious to say, but it's different when you live them. And the way you live them is, number one, you can live them the way I did, which is very unfortunate for me and due to my own poor decisions. So I don't advise your audience to serve a stretch in jail or to get addicted to methamphetamine. So don't live it the way I lived it. Instead, live it by working with people who have served time. Support right. organizations that help people transform their lives following incarceration. Support the efforts of people who have served their time and paid their dues to society. Rejoin society as, as productive members. You will be helping them, but Toby, ultimately getting back to your question, you will be helping yourself understand the root causes that are, are at the core of our societies treating people like me differently just because of my skin color and my socioeconomic background. When you get a glimpse of the true nature of the problems in our society, and, and to step back, in America, we have a beautiful, wonderful society in many, many ways. We've, Americans are incredible people who've done so many uh, great things through the course of history, yet we, we still have a lot of problems, and one of them is the way that people like me who are white and privileged get treated unfairly, meaning given unfair advantages. It, it hurts, it, it, it doesn't, it, it hurts us as a society. And when we better understand that, when we get to know people on a human level who have served time and are turning their lives around, when we connect to that humanity, then we can really understand the, how much these root, these root problems hurt us as a society. And then we're more motivated and we're inspired to fix those problems. Right. And I'm curious now, like, what, what are the common reactions, you know, when you, when you share your stories with, with people, whether that be, you know, just general, you know, the, the general public writing these articles for the Washington Post or Vox um, or, you know, talking to inmates, I'm curious, you know, what, what are the common reactions that you get? And because I, I would assume that for a lot of these people, you're, you're showing that, you know, for a lot of these people who may feel completely hopeless, feel like their life's completely over, you know, from your story, you know, they can, they can sort of realize that they can actually figure out some way to, to contribute to society. Yeah, the, uh, the reactions I get are, are most, almost all positive. The reactions are all positive from people who read my articles and I tell my work. Now, what I've fallen short at, and it's a serious shortcoming on my part, is I haven't had the tough conversations. I haven't had the conversations with the mother of a murder victim. I haven't had the conversations with uh, the victims of violent crimes Whose, uh, whose victimizers I'm working with in prisons. You know, so I'm, uh, it's, it's a failing on my part to really go out and put my work out to people who, are, who are, are deeply connected because they are the victims of the crimes. Is that something people, you aspire to do in the future? This is something absolutely I aspire to do because, uh, you know, one, one thing, one problem with the work I do, if you can call it a problem, is that uh, it doesn't put enough focus on healing the victims, okay? It, we do, and, and I don't mean to say we, we don't do that, because when I coach men in prison, uh, a big part of the coaching is how uh, have you reached out to your victims? Have you made amends? Have you, uh, are you in touch with the victim's families? Are you do this is part of it, but to me, it's not a big enough part. So as I go forward, this is something I want to do even more of. That's 
It's really fascinating to think about. I mean, w it seems like there's a lot of challenges that, you know, would be presented for, for people doing that, for, for incarcerated people reaching out, you know, to the victims. I mean, as far as even if they, you know, the people who are incarcerated recognize their mistakes, they've had probably years to, to think and, and realize all of their mistakes. But what, what, how do you, how do they deal with it if there is not forgiveness on the other end, if the, the victims don't choose to, to have any sympathy or, or care about, you know, people changing their lives or, or apologizing? I don't know. I, I don't know. What I do know about forgiveness is that Gandhi wrote, forgiveness is only for the strong. The weak don't forgive. It's only the strong forgive. And when I forgive somebody, it makes me stronger. It might not have any, it might help the other person. It might have no effect on the other person. But when I put forth forgiveness, it makes me stronger as an individual. So when, uh, to, and to get back to your question, when someone who has victimized a person reaches out to the family or the victim, yes, uh, from, from my experience, sometimes they, they won't hear back or the response will, will, be, uh, will be negative. All we can really do is, own, is focus on what we can control. You know, I can control writing a letter to someone I victimized. I can control... Uh, reaching out to a person. I can control making my amends. I can control making my apology. What comes back at me, I can't always control. In fact, a lot of times I can't control. You know, when we can let go of our expectations, we have a lot of power in life. It's like we were talking a few minutes ago about the current pandemic. You know, we, we can't control the fact that there is a pandemic or that we have these restrictions placed upon us, but we can choose, we have a lot of choice on how we choose to view our circumstances. So if I write a letter of a, and, and I'm speaking as a person who's, who's never uh, victimized someone as a violent criminal. So I'm, I'm a little out of my element here, but from having worked with men who have, if I write a letter attempting to make amends, if I make an honest best effort to, uh, to make amends, to make an apology, I, I've done what I can. And if I can let go of the outcomes, if I can let go of expectations, then I've done a lot to help heal myself. And hopefully Ultimately, I've done something to heal the victims as well. Absolutely. I want to I want to kind of take things full circle here from from what you were saying, you know, at the beginning, you know, your kind of childhood passion for writing. I think it's one of the most incredible parts of your story that now you are a published author. You know, you've written articles for, you know, the Washington Post and Vox, as we mentioned. Was that how, how big of a part of, you know, sort of you feeling like you, you made it, you or you made it out. Yeah. Well, the, the, I, the, the main thing is if you have a dream, if you, the listener, uh, the person watching or listening to this podcast, have a dream, pursue your dream. You know, you, you, there's, a, there's an old school motivational speaker named Jim Rohn. And he says that there's two kinds of pain. There's the pain of discipline and there's the pain of regret. The pain of discipline is tough because it's right now. I got to get up at five o'clock in the morning and I got to write my book. I got to write a chapter and I, and I got to struggle and pound out a page or a couple of pages. That pain of discipline is tough, but the pain of regret is, can be much worse and it can last forever. To get back to your question, you know, it's so important to, to accept that pain of discipline when we're pursuing our dreams. I took things to an extreme. I didn't pursue my dream of being a writer, and you saw where it got me. It got me into drug psychosis and jails and stripped naked, locked up in padded cells in the psychiatric ward. I could go on and on. That, those are the consequences of me not pursuing my dream of being a writer. For you, the listener, you're not going to experience consequences like that, probably. But if you don't pursue your dream, if you don't make a meaningful effort to figure out what it is that drives you in life, what it is that motivates you to bring your best self to the world around you. If you don't pursue your dream, you risk putting yourself to consequences. So you risk bringing consequences onto yourself. You don't want to face those consequences. You know, they, you might not, might not be tomorrow or the next day, or it might not even be a decade from now, and you certainly aren't going to end up stripped naked and put in a padded cell like I was due to my poor choices. But start now pursue your dream, you will find 
that the benefits you get from sacrificing in pursuit of your dream far outweigh the pain of those sacrifices. Mm. Mm. I, I'm curious, this might sound like a weird question, but when you think about everything that's transpired in your life, are you thankful for the things that you've experienced? Do you, do you still have regrets of, of wishing you had done things differently or how do you, how do you sort of, you know, what, what, what's, what goes on in your head when you're kind of reflecting back on your, your incredible journey? Well, I, I would love to go back knowing what I know now. Absolutely. I'd love to be, I'm, I'm staying right now in my childhood bedroom. This is because I, I came out here to Massachusetts where I am now and then the pandemic hit. So I'm, I'm staying with my, uh, my parents. I would love to snap my fingers, be six years old again, but still be me and, and do it all over again. That will never happen. So to answer your question, I would in no way would I roll the dice. I would right. never roll the dice and step into another person's life. Um, I've had so many blessings. I'm able to bring value to the world around me in some small way, like my heroes. You know, my, my heroes are people like Nelson Mandela, uh, people who have done incredible things, who have, who have sacrificed in, and have brought good to the world. The mm -hmm. Dalai Lama. Um, and it goes back to your, uh, your question before, that do I feel like I've made it in having write my, written my book? Yeah, absolutely. Because whereas my dream was kind of things like I want to be a best-selling author and I want to be doing book signings and I, I want to be on TV, yeah, th that was my dream. But to pursue my dream at a point where I wrote a book about overcoming drug addiction and serving incarcerated persons and serving law enforcement, to be able to use my book and my dream to bring value to the world around me, that's an amazing thing. Absolutely. And it's you know it's just funny the way that a pursuit of spirituality takes us, takes us along these winding, twisting paths. We don't get there the way we think we would uh, necessarily get there, but we we do arrive at some beautiful, wonderful places. So well said. yeah, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade my life, and sure. I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah, uh, you know we can't. It's hard to be grateful and angry at the same time. It's hard right. to be grateful and resentful. Contradictory. At the same time. Yeah, and what I do because of the because of what I experience as uh, what most what many people would label as schizophrenia or mental health challenges, I can't always control my thoughts. You know, I, I can't always. It's like uh, you know, think about being grateful when someone's smashing garbage cans behind you. You know, you can yeah, conceivably you can do it. I can think, well, I'm grateful that they're not smashing my head. But if there's garbage can lids being banged right behind you, it's going to be hard to get. Sometimes it is like that for me. You know, some, sometimes when they are uh, entertaining the beliefs or the depression, the anxiety set in, it's hard to control. But I can always control my actions. Mm -hmm. You know, I have always the, the words I say, the text messages I send, the emails, the, the voice messages. I can always put positive words out there. I can was, always do something good. Yeah. Was there a point? Was there like a single moment or was it just a culmination of different things that that led you to that realization from going from a point where you were making all of these, you know, very, you know, poor choices out in the world as far as, you know, what, what you were doing, but then still having certain of the, you know, delusions and, and still battling some, some mental health challenges, but how were you able to, to shift from a point of acting out on it to, to where you're talking about now where, where you have the, the choice? of whether you, you believe or, or follow your, your thoughts? I sought out incredible, amazing people. I worked very hard to do right by them. When I failed at doing so, I got back up again. Incredible, amazing people gave me opportunities to contribute to their lives and their work. It happened time and time and time again. I looked, I, I found, I sought out people who I wanted to be like. I sought out people who were improving themselves. I sought out people who were giving to their communities. I looked for people who found inner peace and pursued spirituality. These people often had material possessions and were successful, and some of them were bordering on celebrities even, but they, those things didn't matter so much as they were bringing good to the world around them. They were helping others. I wanted to do that myself. So I looked to these people, 
I worked very hard to put myself close to them so I could see what they did. So I could see how they talk to people and I could see the words they use and, and I could listen to and I could watch how they appreciated others. And I, I saw how they sat, they uh, gave their time selflessly to helping people. So I did what they did. I said the things they said. I didn't always believe it in my mind. My mind was full of resentment sometimes. My mind, what am I doing? Congratulating this person. Who's but I saw what the, I, the people I admired did. I saw how they treated others. I treated others the same way. Slowly, gradually, my mind changed. They, they say it's, uh, we, we can act our way into right thinking, whereas it's more difficult to think our way into right acting. Interesting. Okay? So thoughts usually follow actions more easily than actions follow thoughts. So I, I sought out people I wanted to be like, I, uh, I did what they did, and eventually I got to a point where slowly but surely, spiritually, and in many ways mentally, I'm at the point where these people are at, which is beautiful and a far, far better existence than smoking methamphetamine and sleeping on the floor of a padded cell after being stripped naked. A hundred percent. Yeah, no debate there. <laughs> so, so what's next for you, Ed? Where, where, what do you see your, your future with? Do you plan on writing more books or sharing your story with more audiences? What, what do you feel like uh, is next? Getting closer to God. That, that's the most important thing that God, I believe she exists. You know, I don't understand her, but getting closer and closer to, uh, to God, to the universe, the spirit, whatever the late name, she, he, it, whatever. That's always number one. It's like George Harrison of the Beatles said. Everything can wait except the search for God, right? George Harrison said that, and he, the Beatles were the were considered by many the most, uh, the best rock and roll band in the history of music. So George Harrison is saying even the heights of rock and roll stardom can wait, but that search for God can't wait. So that's ultimately my future. How does that manifest itself in practical terms? Uh, I write a newsletter every week. Can, can I give my website? Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So go to my website. If you're listening, uh, it's www.edkressy.com. So www.edkressy.com. Uh, you can hit uh, a download PDF button. You can get a free PDF I wrote on suggested ways you can help a loved one who might be in recovery from drug addiction. You'll also get signed up for my newsletter. It comes out every week. It's called Meditations on Meth. It's uh, lessons I've learned about addiction, criminal justice reform, spirituality, mental health. To answer your question, Toby, I'm just sharing my story and the lessons that people have imparted upon me to bring more and more value to the world. I am on the board of directors for, can I say the name of the nonprofit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, called, uh, it's called Defy Ventures. They deliver entrepreneur and employment training to currently and formerly incarcerated persons. So I serve on the advisory board for the Northern California chapter. I work, I still work with the FBI, helping their outreach. I'm, uh, I'm working with uh, I, Google. Google has been an amazing supporter of my work. They, I did a nonprofit for the Wounded Warrior Project. I did a lot of burpees. Now you know what a burpee is? Yeah. Okay, so Google hosted. So Google has really supported my work. Uh, LinkedIn, Slack. Cisco has been an amazing supporter, the, the tech community out in San Francisco. I'm just looking for, uh, I do some coaching, so people who are struggling with addiction, or I've, I've done a lot of public speaking. I'm not a great public speaker, but I've done a lot of- uh, I, total I don't know about that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good because I can see, you know, I, I've learned the value of being vulnerable and telling my story in a way that is intended to bring value so I can coach other people doing the same. So I really developed uh, an ability to help people become more effective public speakers and overcoming fear is such a big part of that. I, I've seen the value in overcoming my fear of the FBI, of public speaking, of many other things. I'm also in the pro, I'm doing something which really faces my biggest fear, which is I've been reaching out to people directly affected by 9-11 because I have this whole story of how I, 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 like I mentioned, I believed I'd inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker. So I've been having incredible conversations. I talked to a guy who was uh, 
in the North Tower, the World Trade Center, when the plane hit, and, and my, quote-unquote, my hijacker, the, the guy I knew, he would have been on that plane that, that hit the North Tower. So the, the guy I talked to on the phone, he lost like 30 uh, colleagues and friends. Hmm. He's this amazing individual. We, we've had one phone conversation, talked on the phone. The point is, I was so full of shame. I was so full of, uh, of self-loathing because I had these beliefs about a hijacker. And I just felt it's, it's a long story. The point is, I was burdened by my shame. I was burdened by my uh, the beliefs I had, having gone into psychosis and about the FBI. Now, as I'm uh, speaking with people who were directly affected by 9/11, maybe I'm helping them in some way, but they're really helping me understand that I can further transform my past into a source of good and value to the world around me. So that's one thing I've been doing recently. I talked to a guy who's uh, a, a major uh, a major source of support in the Muslim community. In, uh, in Brooklyn, in the New York area, and I'm seeing how I could possibly help uh, conduct outreach from the FBI. He already works with the FBI, so I'm helping, potentially helping him do further outreach to the Muslim community from the FBI to form bridges of trust and understanding, make society better. Uh, I'm trying to learn more about the Muslim community uh, and all communities, all spiritual communities. Um, these are the things I'm, I'm doing. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff, but it brings value to my life and hopefully gives back to society. It's incredible, and Ed, I this has been fascinating talking with you, and I really appreciate you you sharing, you know, the full the full story. Not you know, not no sugarcoating, just the the real reality of what you what you went through and what you were able to overcome and and turn it into such you know positive ways of affecting the world so continue continue sharing your story thank you so much for for coming on the show today thanks to you thanks to your amazing audience very happy to be here i'm grateful absolutely and for those of you who enjoyed the show um go ahead and like and subscribe to our youtube channel uh roscoe's wetsuit you can also listen to audio versions of the podcast on spotify apple podcasts and iHeartRadio. So go ahead, check us out, uh, whichever way you want. Uh, also on Instagram, we are Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. All right, Ed, again, thank you so much. Thank you.